July 28, 2023. The true crime world is buzzing about Carly Russell, an Alabama woman who disappeared after calling 911 to report a child on the side of the street on her way home from work. At a recent press conference, it was announced via her attorney that Carly had made up the entire story. Her motive for this remains a mystery. But while time and resources were spent investigating what ultimately turned out to be a hoax, thousands of people remain missing in the United States alone. Today, on July 28th, I'm highlighting the stories of four individuals who disappeared on this very day in the past, to ask that you remember them, if only for the length of this episode, on the anniversary of their disappearance. Welcome to episode 44 of 1 minute and 43 seconds a true Unsolved Mysteries podcast. July 28, 2016. Ibrahim Polder was a 56-year-old man. He was living in Los Angeles, California. There really isn't a ton of information out there about Ibrahim, but he was born on November 6, 1959, meaning if he were alive today, he would be 63 years old. Sadly, Ibrahim disappeared under suspicious circumstances seven years ago and hasn't been seen or heard from since. On the morning of July 28, 2016, Ibrahim was last seen by family in the 10,000 block of Wilkins Avenue in Los Angeles, California. According to the website Uncovered, he left for work and never came home. He would eventually be reported missing by his brother nine days later on August 6th. Because of the amount of time that passed between when Ibrahim was last seen and when he was reported missing, I can only assume that he lived alone. Surely a wife or kids or a roommate would have raised an issue about this earlier. And it's possible that Ibrahim just wasn't in touch with his brother on a daily basis. Nevertheless, he was reported missing on August 6th, nine days after he was last seen on the morning of July 28th. Now, five days after that, on August 11th, there was a break in the case. The gray Honda Civic that Ibrahim was driving was found in a cul-de-sac near Hosp Grove Park in Carlsbad, California. Now, this actually wasn't his car. It belonged to a friend, uh, and he had borrowed it. It's unclear why he borrowed this car um, or what he was intending to use it for, but he was the one driving it. For reference, Carlsbad, where the car is found, is nearly a two-hour drive south from Los Angeles. Uh, And it was actually only two days after Ibrahim was last seen that the car was first spotted by a Carlsbad police officer. And my understanding of this is that the connection to the vehicle wasn't made until he was reported missing by his brother. Bizarrely, six days after the car was found, Ibrahim's wallet, keys, and pants were found nearby in some brush in the 2200 block of Jefferson Street near the Buena Vista Lagoon. Now, let's break this down a little bit. 
So his car is found in a cul-de-sac near Hosp Grove Park. Hosp Grove Park is said to be an unpaved nature trail with views of the ocean. His wallet, keys, and pants were found five days later in some nearby brush, quote, in the 2200 block of Jefferson Street. Some sources say these items were found in a field. Perhaps this is just an arbitrary discrepancy, but for the sake of clarity, I wanted to mention it. I took a quick look at Google Maps and outlined the general area of where his car was found to the general area where his wallet, keys, and pants were found. Um, unfortunately, the sources available didn't provide an exact location, only that his car was found in a cul-de-sac near the park and the other items in the 2200 block of Jefferson Street. The area around appears to be fairly well populated with a lot of businesses. There's very little mention of this case online, except for the odd article here and there and a page of the California State Justice Department website and the Charlie Project. Mention on any online discussion forums are even more sparse, although it has been mentioned in a few places. I wanted to share one comment in particular that provides some insight into the area Ibrahim's car and personal items were found. Posted by Reddit user mdocs two years ago, in the Unresolved Mysteries Forum subreddit. The post reads, He went missing in Los Angeles, but a car he was borrowing was found in northern suburban San Diego, near a lagoon, around a 100-mile-slash-two-hour drive from his apartment. This case is near me, which is why it intrigues me. The location his car ended up is incredibly random, particularly for someone not from the area. There's also not many places for a missing person to go around there. There are tons of neighborhoods, busy streets, malls, restaurants, etc. It's not somewhere where you can wander into the wilderness and go undetected. Interestingly, this comment is the only place that mentions Ibrahim living in an apartment building. Perhaps the fact that the commenter lives near the area provides us with a local perspective. Now back to the car and personal items. Despite there being a lot of businesses in the area, this spot was also not far from the Buena Vista Lagoon. The Buena Vista Lagoon is a freshwater lagoon that covers 223 acres of wetland habitat. It also separates the city of Carlsbad from Oceanside. A weir does exist about 100 yards from the Pacific Ocean, which if you're unfamiliar with what a weir is, which I was, it's a small dam essentially. And supposedly, depending on the time of the year and the amount of rain, it's possible that there may be outflow into the Pacific Ocean. I actually checked into the weather in Carlsbad at that time of the year in 2016, and from what I can tell, there wasn't much rain during that time. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? As grim as it is, I'm trying to understand if this lagoon is a place that would conceal a body for any amount of time. And I'm certainly no expert, but one possibility in my mind is that Ibrahim somehow made it to the lagoon, or the ocean. But before I speculate, I want to go over the timeline of this case one more time to make sure we have an accurate understanding of how things played out. Thursday, July 28, 2016. Ibrahim is last seen in Los Angeles in the morning. Saturday, July 30th. A Carlsbad police officer notices the gray Honda Civic that Ibrahim was driving abandoned on a cul-de-sac near Hoffs Grove Park in Carlsbad, California, about two hours south of L.A. Saturday, August 6th, Ibrahim is reported missing by his brother. August 11th, the connection is made between the abandoned vehicle and Ibrahim. August 17th, 
Ibrahim's wallet, keys, and pants are found in some nearby brush or a field in the 2200 block of Jefferson Street in Carlsbad, not far from where the car he was driving was located. Ibrahim had no family, no friends, and no known business in the Carlsbad area, and his family and friends do not understand what his reasoning would be for traveling to the area. He also had no known illnesses. His family did tell police, however, that Ibrahim enjoyed gambling and drinking. Whether that has anything to do with his disappearance is unclear. I decided to go on Google Maps again and see if there are any casinos in the vicinity of where the car was located in Carlsbad. The Intercontinental Hotel Casino is approximately three miles away. The next closest would be the Valley View Casino, about four miles away. I would be interested in knowing whether or not police checked surveillance video at either of those locations. So what happened to 56-year-old Ibrahim Polder? Did he drive willingly to the Carlsbad area, or was he taken by force? Why did his keys, wallet, and pants end up in some brush close to where his car was located? Did someone else dispose of these items? According to the State of California Department of Justice website, Ibrahim also goes by the name Saeed. In 2016, he stood at 5 feet 5 inches tall, weighed around 160 pounds, and wore glasses. He has brown eyes and black hair. Anyone with information on what happened to Ibrahim Polder should contact LAPD's Missing Persons Unit at 213-966-1800 or 877-527-3247. July 28th. 2012. Courtney Stouffer was living with her boyfriend at the time she disappeared in the small township of Palmyra, Pennsylvania. She was 21 years old and was just beginning to find herself, learning the ropes of being on her own. Her parents would tell Crime Watch Daily that Courtney was a fun-loving person. On Saturday, July 28th, the night starts out with a party at the apartment she shared with her boyfriend, Brad. But things aren't going to go well because someone called the cops. This was a bit of a more serious situation because Courtney's boyfriend was actually in house arrest at the time because of a DUI he had gotten. So the cops show up and the boyfriend gets taken away in handcuffs. Now this pisses Courtney right off. She's furious with her downstairs neighbors, who she thought called the police. And because she was afraid that her boyfriend was going to end up doing a longer jail sentence because of this. He ultimately only ends up spending a week in jail. Anyway, this all goes down around 9 p.m. So now the party has been broken up. Brad's been taken to jail. Courtney and some friends decide to head to Harrisburg, which, according to Google Maps, is about 30 minutes by car from Palmyra. But Courtney's anger must have followed her because she ends up getting into an altercation at the bar and gets kicked out a bit before 2 a.m. I'm not sure what the cause of this fight was, but nevertheless, she's separated from her friends for a little bit while they eventually meet up, get some pizza, and then head back to the Palmyra area. Now, a friend of Courtney's by the name of Cody tags along with her because apparently Courtney is still pretty angry. Her boyfriend was arrested earlier. She got in a fight at the bar, so she's still pretty heated. 
She ends up confronting the neighbors that she thought reported her party. So the cops get called again, and this is just after 3 in the morning. Police show up to a screaming match between Courtney and the neighbor. Um, Being there the second time, the police say, you know what, everybody go inside to your apartments, cool off, sleep it off. Uh, So they do. Uh, And then the police leave. But just under an hour later, they would be called back again. This time, the neighbor Todd says that Courtney is, quote, screaming through the walls, stomping on the floors, and threatening them. But when cops arrive at the scene at 4.31 a.m., everything is quiet. So thinking that Courtney had likely settled down and gone to sleep by then, police leave for a third time and don't make any contact with her. Fast forward to 7.30 a.m. Cody wakes up and does not see Courtney, so he leaves. Uh, He goes by to a nearby convenience store where he was captured on surveillance, and he shoots her a text. Now, Sunday comes and goes, and no one hears anything from Courtney, but an alarm isn't raised until Monday morning when Courtney's mom goes to her apartment and finds everything in order. Her keys, phone, wallet were discovered at her place. Never a good sign, if you ask me. Her shoes were kicked off, as she usually did. And the strongest indication that something was wrong, Courtney's dog was left behind. Still, despite the alarming fact that all of her personal items were left behind, there was no sign of a struggle. All her family could do was call the police and report her missing, and take to the streets themselves to search for her. Unfortunately, they would come up empty-handed. Then, a clue emerges. An alleged friend by the name of Amanda sends Courtney's mom a message on Facebook. She tells a grisly story. She says she overhears a conversation that two people went to Courtney's apartment that night looking for drugs and money that were supposedly there. Now, allegedly, these people stole the money and killed Courtney, disposing of her body in Memorial Lake. So Courtney's mom encourages Amanda to speak to police about this, and she does. Um, And police end up searching the lake with sonar and the shore, and they find nothing. So with that dead end, people turn their sights on Cody, the longtime friend that Courtney uh, was spending the night with on the night of her disappearance. After all, he was the last one known to be with her. But unfortunately, this clue leads to another dead end, as Cody agrees to take a polygraph, he gives his DNA, he authorizes a search of his property, and he is eventually cleared by police. Now, some people think that Cody was cleared too quickly. One theory I read online is that what the neighbors might have heard before the third police call, the screaming and the stomping, was actually the sound of Courtney being attacked, and that when the police arrived on the scene, finding it to be quiet, that Courtney was dead by that point. It's also been alleged that Cody has had a crush on his longtime friend for some time. Could he have made an advance that was ultimately rejected? Obviously, there's no proof to this, but it is a theory that I've seen. This, like so many other theories swirling around the disappearance of Courtney Stouffer, is just a rumor. So what happened that night? Did Courtney pick a fight with the wrong person who ultimately harmed her? Did her association with some questionable people lead her to an unfortunate fate? Whatever the case, her family is holding out hope that one day she'll be brought home. 
At the time of her disappearance, Courtney Stouffer was 5 feet 8 inches tall and 110 pounds. She had blonde hair and green eyes. She had several tattoos, and we'll have photos of them on our Instagram page at 143mysteries. If you have any information about the disappearance of Courtney, you're asked to contact the Lebanon County Detective Bureau at 717-228-4408. If Courtney is still alive today, she would be 32 years old. July 28, 1973. Frank Oliva, a Czechoslovakian immigrant, and Nebraska native Mary Oliva were married for 52 years at the time of their disappearance in 1973. Frank had moved to the United States when he was just 17 years old, joining his brothers in Nebraska and working as a mason, a carpenter, and a farmer. In 1957, Frank and Mary moved to Wilbur, Nebraska, a town in which many Czechoslovakian immigrants lived. Frank eventually retired, although he picked up an odd job here and there, and Mary liked to garden and play bingo on Saturday nights. Unfortunately, tragedy was not a stranger to Frank and Mary. Mary's son from her first marriage prior to Frank died in 1959, and in 1960, just a year later, they suffered another loss when the couple's daughter died of polio. Despite these harsh blows, the Olivas found comfort in the fact that they had a remaining son, Frank Jr., and his wife Shirley, who would often drop by and help Frank and Mary around the house. In 1973, they were relying on Shirley and Frank Jr. more and more, as Mary's health seemed to be slipping. She was having memory problems, which, for anyone who has had a loved one experience this, it's heartbreaking and incredibly challenging. Mary also had heart problems and high blood pressure. Fast forward to the evening of July 28th. Frank and Mary were seen arriving at their home between 8 and 9 p.m. It was just getting dark. But they weren't home for long. Just a few minutes later, they'd depart their home again. Mary had changed into a house coat. Together, the pair pulled out of their driveway, never to be seen again. A search commenced, with more than 150 people taking part. Despite the effort, Frank, Mary, nor their vehicle, have been located in the years since. Frank and Mary's only surviving son, Frank Jr., along with the sheriff, believes the Olivas are in a body of water somewhere, although divers haven't been able to find them. There were two big sand pits to the south of Wilbur, not far from where Frank and Mary were last seen, which were rumored to be up to 200 feet deep. There were also several ponds in the area. And what's more heartbreaking... They don't think that this was by accident. Frank Jr. believes that his mom and dad took their lives on that day in 1973. Mary was in poor health, things were getting harder, and Frank refused to put her in a nursing home. Still, without firm evidence of this, the disappearance of Frank and Mary Oliva remains shrouded in mystery. Why did Frank and Mary leave their house for a second time on the evening of July 28th? Did they intend to drive off together, never to return? Or did something else happen, something unplanned? In 2010, an aging man himself, 
Frank Jr. told the Lincoln Journal Star that although he doesn't know what happened to his parents for sure, he bought a headstone to remember them by. The ground underneath it remains empty. You just had to put a stone there, he told Peter Salter of the Journal Star. If you didn't, that's two people that never were. Sadly, Frank Jr. passed away in 2013. Most people will never know the names of the missing, if not for the brief moment in time it might be a topic of discussion in the media. But for every person that gets the privilege of appearing in a headline, there are many, many more who do not. And without a mention, a body, or any clues as to what may have happened, as Frank Jr. says, that's people that never were. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the stories of Ibrahim, Courtney, Frank, and Mary today. If you have any information about what happened to any of the cases discussed today, please refer to the show description for contact details. You can catch us on Twitter at 143podcast. We'll have photos posted on Instagram at 143mysteries. And as always, for source information or to suggest a case, you can contact us at 143mysteries.com. Thanks again for being here, and we'll see you next time. One minute and 43 seconds is dedicated to my number one fan. Thanks, Dad. I love you, and I miss you. This podcast has been approved by Skipper the Cat. Right, Skippy?